We will edit that out. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the RC Report. I am your host, RC Carlton. Before we get to our very special guest, I want to encourage you to go to iTunes, search IBN, give us a rating, hopefully five stars. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oconobomb, I-C-O-N-O, bomb. Without further ado, he needs no introduction, Jason Whitlock. How are you today, Jason? I'm great. How are you, Roddy? I am doing well. You've caused quite a stir lately with your take on Kobe Bryant, still the news cycle. You called him the most fraudulent superstar celebrity athlete that we've ever seen, just in general, because you are a man that says a lot, there's a time and a place for everything. Do you feel like that was the appropriate right after the game, or the next morning after the game, that that was the appropriate time to give Kobe's eulogy? Hold for a second. I mean, I, can I get a proper introduction? You know, what about the people I mean, big, that you, I, that I didn't know? Knows you. But we, we, will, we will do it again. Jason Whitlock <laughs> of Fox Sports, formerly of ESPN, world-renowned, nationally-renowned columnist. Is that better? That's much better. Now, your question was, was it properly timed? Of course it was properly timed. Everybody was talking about Kobe Bryant. Everybody was celebrating Kobe Bryant, and it's not that I wanted to rain on his parade. I I have no problem with, you know, some celebration of Kobe Bryant, but I felt like that last game explained everything about Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant is a narcissist, and narcissism has been his problem. Since he was 17 years old, narcissism created his problems with Shaquille O'Neal. Narcissism created his problems with Phil Jackson. Narcissism is what led to the events in Colorado that got him in all kinds of trouble. Uh, and narcissism is what that last game was completely and totally. Uh, an example of his narcissism. He he went through a 20-year basketball career without ever realizing the game was about everyone else, about the team, and about getting other people involved. And so I felt like we had the perfect explanation of everything that was right and wrong about Kobe Bryant in that game, Everybody else just focused on the right and celebrated it. And I was like, well, hold on. This Lakers franchise is in complete disarray at the end of his career. Uh, He has ripped them off for $50 million. Uh, The environment in the locker room is toxic with D'Angelo Russell. Kobe Bryant has left a huge mess. And it's his narcissism that has created a mess. The entire last season was about pleasuring Kobe Bryant, and the entire last game was about uh, pleasuring Kobe Bryant. And we celebrated it. And that level of narcissism should not be celebrated because, again, if you go all the way back to Colorado and what he had to cop to there, that – Although I thought it was consensual, I clearly now understand the woman didn't think it was consensual. Rape and what he's talking about there, that's a narcissistic mindset. And so, yeah, I thought it was the perfect time to talk about 
that as it relates to Kobe Bryant. He's not some great shining example of what sports are supposed to be about. He's an extreme narcissist uh, that had problems throughout his career, had great talent, but had problems throughout his career dealing with others and being a good teammate and just being a good person because he spent his whole career and apparently much of his life only concerned with Kobe Bryant. I've always I've been very critical of Kobe's legacy, but I always felt like it's more complex. And I feel like you're giving Kobe the lion's share of the blame when, yes, Shaq did lead partly in in part to what Kobe's actions. But also, Shaq wasn't fully committed. He came out of shape. He wanted a pay raise, and Kobe was the better option. And also, if you look at the thirty for thirty that just came on, Shaq had the same exact problems with Penny Hardaway that he later had with Kobe. His ego was involved too, and his narcissism is involved too. I think a lot of super talented professional people are narcissistic, no doubt about it. Uh, but <laughs> Kobe's was on a whole different level. And Kobe never evolved. He's at the end of his 20-year career, shoots 50 times in the game, and celebrates and loves it. You're supposed to evolve as a human being. Kobe hasn't. And again, one day, uh, I don't know how old you are, RC, but you know Kobe's thirty-seven, thirty-eight years old. By this Same time, age. you're supposed. Okay, well, hopefully by this time you've realized that this life, all of our lives' journeys, are not about just pleasuring ourselves. It's about helping others, and I, and I mean that sincerely, Kobe needed to grow as a human being and you know someone needed to stand out and say to everyone that's celebrating this and he's being an example to all these other uh, young people and young basketball players and you got basketball players everywhere celebrating it and someone needed to shake them and say no 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 life is about what you do for others that's what sports is supposed to teach you the power and the enjoyment and the life lessons from helping and working with others. Kobe never learned that lesson. And, yes, I admit that, look, all humans are flawed. So Shaq is flawed, Phil Jackson's flawed, uh, Jim Buss is flawed, Mitch Kupchak is flawed. But what I see is Kobe is clearly the most flawed of all those individuals. And he <laughs> is the guy that has been the guy that has helped the Lakers three straight years set a record for losses and turn the franchise into a bit of a laughing stock. Every time I've seen this story posted, and it was wildfire for about four or five days and over the weekend, every time I've seen this story posted, and I posted it on my site as well, underneath the video somewhere someone said, this is the pot calling the kettle black with Jason Whitlock. Huh that I'm some super narcissist that only thinks and does things for myself. And and I would say that narcissism would be too harsh of a criticism for you, but I would also say that you have a healthy self-esteem and the way the depth, and we're not getting to that yet, but the way the depth in article was phrased, they actually used that same exact word. And that, that's a real narcissist on the comments of it. Yeah, yeah, narcissism or narcissist. Well, look, I can't 
object to the way people view me or have, I guess I could object, but look, if that's the way I'm viewed, that's the way I'm viewed. The reality of the way that I've lived my life uh, is completely 100% contradictory to that. The reality of the way that I've executed my career, the people I've helped in this business, uh, again, I don't have to go uh, chapter and verse because I'm not that kind of person in terms but I could go through a whole laundry list of people uh, in this business. I've edited their work. I've given them their ideas. I've given them news stories. I've helped them get jobs. I've done all kinds of things. And I, you know, we want to go to the undefeated. I, I, I took and will take and continue to take a lot of heat and a lot of responsibilities for uh, the for responsibility for things that went wrong that, you know, there was far more to that story uh, than me, uh, but but that, that's fine. I, and so, look, people can say that, but I would those people have virtually no information about me, and uh, you know, and, and until you've got me on record somewhere saying that, uh, you know, I bent some woman over and I thought it was consensual, but I clearly realized it wasn't consensual. Uh, until you hear me saying some stuff like that, the analogy to me and Kobe is a joke. That level of narcissism to rape someone and have to admit to it and cut a check to analogize that to me is a joke, but you know, I'll let people do what they want. What, what do you want your legacy to be when it's all said and done? Uh, I think I started out this career uh, trying to be, and this is where I think there is some fertile ground to criticize me for my Kobe take. I've always wanted to be the sports writing version of Mike Royko. And, you know, I've criticized Kobe for his imitation of of uh, Michael Jordan. Jordan. And, you know, I've spent my journalism career I don't think trying to imitate, but trying to be the sports version of Mike Royko, someone who is plain spoken and funny and thoughtful, um, someone whose opinion you you always thought was honest and coming from a real place. Uh, but many of the uh, much of my philosophy about being a newspaper columnist and then a web journalist. Is taken from what I felt like I learned from Mike Royko and the studying of his career, and so I just wanted to put my own twist on that and be the sports writing version of Mike Royko, and so that's what I would probably still to this day hope that my legacy is like. Oh, okay, that that dude was the sports writing version of Mike Royko. You've mentioned him a lot. I mean, a lot. He always comes up. What about him inspires you so much? Oh, he was tremendous. I mean, he was. He was prolific, and he was tremendous. He was honest. You know, probably half of his work I agreed with. The other half I disagreed with, but I always felt like he was coming from an honest place. I always felt like he wrote what he believed, and he connected with real people, and he challenged the establishment and, and authority consistently in his column. He he took on uh, the mayor of Chicago in a consistent, fair, aggressive fashion. 
he spoke truth to power throughout his, you know, 30, 40 year career, 30 year career, I would say, because he died kind of early uh, <laughs> in Chicago. He was a great local columnist and had a great national following. And that's what I always thought I was going to do, spend my, you know, I landed in Kansas City and I would have been more than happy spending my entire career there. Uh, I had a great local following and I built a great national following while being a local columnist. And so, you know, the fall of newspapers um, caused me to adjust. But I, I don't know. I, to me, Mike Royko was the best newspaper columnist in the history of America. And uh, he made me laugh out loud. He challenged my thoughts. He said many things that I was like, holy cow, that's the greatest thing I've ever read. Uh, and, you know, he... We had a lot in similar, and in, in, we had a lot of similar things, a lot in common. Uh, I think his family or his dad owned a bar in the neighborhood, and he kind of grew up on that bar stool. And you know, my dad owned a bar in the hood, and I grew up in that bar stool around working class black people. Uh, and that's where my perspective came from. The Royco was an old white dude. You know, I was a black dude, but you know, I he he he's like helped me see that uh, we have far far more in common uh, than we do in difference. And uh, you know, I just always respected the guy, liked the guy, and uh, you know, he was my certainly my first professional inspiration. How do you think your legacy has been affected by what went down with the undefeated? Oh, you know, I, I think it's a marathon. And so I, I think uh, my critics will try to use it in a negative, but I don't think they're going to have much success with that because the undefeated lives on. And it has, it started out as a website when it was given to me that, you know, it's going to have 10 employees or 10, a head count of 10. And I see that they're launching here in May with more than 30 people. Uh, and so, you know, the critics can say whatever they want, but, you know, I helped ESPN come up with an idea that they're still very committed to and have provided a bunch of uh, people, many of them African-American jobs in this industry. And so, uh, they can continue to beat me up about the undefeated, but the truth is I created opportunities for a lot of African-American journalists and just a lot of journalists in general, and it's an idea that a major corporation is still behind. And so if it has any success at all, uh, the undefeated is going to be a credit to me. Do you regret going on Simmons and, for lack of a better word, I think you literally quoted it saying, for lack of a better word, calling it the black Grantland? No, I don't. Uh, I regret not realizing how much uh, jealousy and, and envy and uh, I underestimated the passion of my critics and the passion of people like, man, why did this dude get this opportunity? I wanted that. Because if you go back and listen to what I said on Simmons' podcast, I was being respectful and deferential to Bill and trying to connect with his audience 
and made a passing comment on the fly about Black Grantland. Uh, my critics took it and ran with it and turned it into this negative thing. When I was just trying to be respectful to Bill and his audience and what he had built, uh, what I also didn't know was at that time was just how much internal hostility there was at ESPN towards Simmons and Grantland. I didn't recognize that at all during that interview because I wasn't aware of it. And so, you know, so some people don't even get why the black Grantland term hurt me. It didn't hurt me externally. It hurt me internally because I think people heard that internally like, holy cow, uh, he's going to be like Simmons. And if you follow the reporting uh, of what happened to Grantland, and these these aren't my stories. These are stories written by others. You know, how Grantland was operated like a little island unto itself. And there was so much hostility among Grantland staff for the people at ESPN back in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, and so when I made that comment in passing, people back in Bristol may have heard that as, oh, I'm going to build a staff that's hostile towards Bristol, and this is going to be just like Grantland. And that was not my intention. Again, I was making a passing comment, trying to be respectful to Bill and uh, what he had built and his audience. And, you know, I got burned for doing it because I'm, I'm really just not a political person, Ronnie. And, uh, you know, I'm a real person. And, you know, what I learned in that job is you have to be highly, highly political, my entire career has been built on my work is going to solve all politics. Just give me a place to publish my thoughts. Give me a microphone uh, to talk. And <laughs> my content is going to solve all politics. Well, you know, I got over there and I was limited on how much content I could produce. And I got bogged down in a political quagmire, and I'm just not a political person. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think at all times, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it, and I'm going to be real with you. And, you know, that's management at that level uh, just doesn't really, in this era, just doesn't tolerate that kind of transparency. How much do you think you were hurt by the length of time it took to launch the website? From my perspective, it looks like your critics got to get several, more than several, but many shots in before you even were able to present what The Undefeated truly was to the world. Again, as I, my mentality and my strategy throughout my career has been my content answers all politics. Uh, and so, yeah, I didn't get an opportunity to put out a lot of content, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I've seen so many things written or were, that were written at the time. And it's like, I got hired in August of 2013. I wasn't authorized to hire anybody until August of 2014, but I read all this criticism about Whitlock couldn't hire anybody. No one wanted to work for him. And that was just preposterous. It was a joke. But, again... I was in a political environment, had a lot of uh, external critics and some people internally 
probably afraid of me, but just externally, there were people that, <laughs> if you go look, the, the Greg Howard kid that desperately wanted a job and desperately wanted uh, me to confirm or give him a black identity. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, when he found out he him? wasn't getting a why, job. Why do you say that you, why do you say that he wanted you to give him a black identity? Because I talked to the kid, <laughs> I recognized the kid. Well, what did you I say, the, or is there something that led you to that? Like, give me something tangible. If you talk to him and just listen to his personal narrative, how he grew up, <laughs> and all that, and I think he put in his he, in his original piece, he put in there, yeah, Whitlock wanted to know if I was really black or something like that. And he, I think in his article, and again, it's been a long time since I read it, but I do remember this, he, he, he bragged about, yeah, and Whitlock was impressed by this or that, and he totally had me wrong. No, I wasn't. I wasn't impressed. I actually had eventually reached the conclusion and uh, that, you know, this kid has some identity issues as it relates to race, and not sure if he really fits over here or if he's looking for an identity. And if you go, the, the kid did a long podcast uh, with 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 someone where he talked about moving to Dallas. And Dallas is the most racist place he'd ever been in the world. And he thought it was terrible. And someone called him the N-word. And he sat in his apartment crying and contemplating suicide and then moved back to New York that that's that's not someone with enough heart to do what what <laughs> we were trying to do not enough life real life experience to do what <laughs> I'm interested in or what I feel like a journalist has to do you can't can't move to Dallas and think you've moved to South Africa in 1965 because <laughs> it's just not that uh, you, uh but you basically said that ESPN wouldn't let you hire somebody for a year just a second ago. What else hindered you? What what took so long? Just, I, 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 I don't want to say so ESPN. I don't want to say ESPN wouldn't allow me. That would be unfair. Okay. I, I would just say the way the politics played out. Okay. <laughs> that was the case, uh, and so that that. It, it, it's again. I think the project was massive, and if you just follow the news accounts of this person was managing the undefeated, and then this person was managing the undefeated, and then another person was managing the undefeated. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the people above me. Mm-hmm. And so, so they were. ESPN Disney handed by John Skipper a black project that's supposed to be cutting edge and uh, people have to be comfortable managing a project like that and have to want to do it. And so if you go look at where ESPN eventually landed, instead of saying, hey, we need uh, a writing talent and a, uh, to, to lead this project, we need someone in management 
who has the expertise and the willingness to manage this project. I think that would explain why Kevin Meredith got hired. But, you know, that's my opinion from following the news. Uh, and, if, you know, if people just apply logic to what ESPN steps have been before and after, it, it all makes sense. It, and so it's it's easy to say, oh, boy, look at Whitlock. He had a problem with his secretary. And, and we got some emails, blah, blah, blah. That's a very unsophisticated, childish narrative on what transpired. Uh, you know, I read somewhere, or I read not somewhere, I read in the Deadspin article, like that uh, a secretary was fired for speaking out of turn. And and I just it's it's almost comical. Take ESPN out of it. Just think of a major corporation in America. Major corporations in America have major human resources departments. Disney probably has one of the most powerful and biggest human resources department in America. You don't get to fire people for uh, speaking out of turn. A black man in America doesn't get to fire a white woman for speaking out of turn. It's comical. So there's probably <laughs> that's probably not an accurate portrayal of what transpired. But again, it makes good copy and good clicks, and and you know I I'm I'm a I'm a easy target, and people are willing to believe it. Oh, the big black man. He's the boogeyman, and they just let him run wild, <laughs> but not actually probably accurate if you just apply common sense. How did you find out about the Deadspin story? Like, when did it come to your attention? Uh, which one? The infamous one. The one that most oh, I don't know. They're both infamous. <laughs> yeah, they are. The, the second, the, the latter of the two. <laughs> where they would say that you was the last straw. The public would say it is. Uh, How did I find out about it? I don't know. I knew it was coming because, okay. you know, I knew we had an employee that had uh, been let go and who reached out to Deadspin instantly. Uh, and so I knew it was coming and, you know, probably knew for six, eight weeks they called – you know, they tried to call uh, a few people that are on staff who didn't talk to them. And so uh, I knew it was coming, but, you know, how I found out, I'm not sure. I, I was somewhere and okay. someone said, hey, there's a dead, another Deadspin article, but I don't remember. When something like that goes down, you're basically in the eye of a shitstorm. What, what were your feelings as you realized this story was getting bigger and the Twitter sphere was just going at you? Like, how did you feel? What was your reaction to it? Uh, my, I'm going to keep it a hundred, a hundred, a hundred. My initial reaction was, oh man, th th with this second one, the malice and the, the dishonesty in the first one, my initial reaction was like, you know what? I should sue. And, <laughs> you know, uh, because I think the maliciousness and the intent so clear, uh, and I had a lot of documentation to prove that, you know, there was clear dishonesty and deception 
uh, in the first article. And then so the first article set the stage for the second one. And all that, you know, it's like people say, oh, they got emails. They got, and it's like, it's I don't know if you've seen Making a Murderer, but it's yeah. like, you know, Ken Kratz, the prosecutor, had a bunch of facts that, you know, he tied together loosely and, you know, made Steve Avery a murderer or whatever. You you can take a set of independent facts and make them say damn near anything. But, you know, all of it was based on a lie and an agenda and all that. And so... Why didn't you assume? I didn't because at the end of the day, after talking uh, to my lawyer, talking to my agent, talking to myself... I'm a beast, man, at producing content. I'm a beast in this business. And I just got to put work in. And my work, I have to go back into a lane that works for me, producing content, and let my content and who I am as a journalist win the day. And life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And my career is a marathon. And over time, my work will win out. Evil people that do that kind of shit will eventually get exposed. And someone that's Hulk Hogan's got time. You know, his career is over as a wrestler. He's got time uh, to go wrestle with a bunch of snakes and, and expose them. I'm still executing my career. And I'm really in my prime. And do I want to waste my prime years wrestling with snakes or producing content? And I just chose to, you know, keep executing my career. What was the reaction initially at ESPN? And when did you hear from them? Talk about the second one now. Or you can take me to the project with both articles if you want. You know, I don't... I don't remember much of how other than, you know, I remember from the first one, everyone just said, hey, man, just keep chopping wood. We know they're full of shit. And just, you know, the website will answer all your critics. Uh, the second one, I, I don't, the, the second one was such, it, it had so many complications to it because, again, we had an employee go, a uh, former employee go off the rails. There were so many side issues and things like that that I really don't remember much of a reaction. I mean, I remember people on my team at the undefeated just being devastated and sad and um just <laughs> again, I've been in the middle. I've been under attack my entire career. I've been dealing with critics my entire career. I was dealing with people on my team that had never been under any kind of attack, had never been under any kind of scrutiny. And so it was much harder for them than it was for me. I'm kind of used to it. I put out a lot of work that makes people uncomfortable, and they've been coming at me since I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1992 or whenever I got there. Uh, And so I just remember talking to them about, don't worry about it. Stay the course. Uh, but in terms of the rest of ESPN, I don't know how they reacted. I'm sure some people were happy. Some people thought it was unfair. I, I, I don't. I don't. I, I'm not even trying to play games with you. 
I, I don't remember that clearly. How did you find out? I mean, how did you find out that you were off the project? Uh, John Skipper came to L.A. and had me come over to his hotel and just and try, it was from out of nowhere and just told me he was going a different direction. Uh, and, you know, I was I was devastated and very sad. Um, took me probably 36 hours, uh, to get over it. And then I was just like, you know, just keep chopping wood and, you know, saw it as an opportunity to move back into, uh, the lane that I'm best at. And that's producing content and, uh, being a journalist and being a personality on TV. You've been a columnist. It was a tough 36 hours. Excuse me? I would imagine. I would imagine. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I said you've been a columnist most of your life, and the work of a columnist done in isolation and takes a special kind of personality to do that. Do you think that that kind of personality trait or that kind of personality and who you are as a columnist hurts you in being a leadership, in a leadership role? I, I, I think there's two separate issues. I think it's being a leader with the people I work with in L.A., absolutely not. I think in terms of, and I said this earlier, in terms of playing the politics you have to play uh, corporately and with other executives and with people that don't work with you, yeah, I think my personality and my style, a horrible fit. Again, I'm 100% transparent at all times. That's a core value for me. It's something I, I believe in uh, to the utmost, and that's not something you do in management. Sometimes you got to tell people what, you, what they want to hear in order to get things done. I tend to, go, and so I, I come off like an oddball. I mean, people know where they stand with me at all times, and uh, <laughs> it, it's it's I, you know it just. Someone like me in a corporate management setting seems like a person from outer space. I, I hear you saying basically that you were bad at the politics of it. Yeah, that, that's accurate. That, I didn't say basically. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is what you said. I just want to quote you over and <laughs> yeah. be, be wrong. Uh, the other aspect of it, a lot of it in your writing, because I've heard you say it before, that you looked at it the same way because you, you grabbed onto what you knew, which is a football background, and you used a coach or a general manager as your guideline for leading the undefeated. Do you think that leadership style was too narrow of an approach, or do you think other things got in the way and that wasn't really the problem? Well, again, I, I think not being any good at politics and things like that is what uh, got in the way. I, I think that Look, if someone asked me, "Hey, uh, you think I'm, you think, uh, you think I can get a job at the undefeated?" I'm gonna say, "Hey, I don't know. Send me your work." And then they'll send me their work, and I'll look over and go, "No, I don't think this is up to standards for what we're trying to do right now." But I appreciate your interest, and uh, send me. Uh, some future work and, you know, as things move along. That ain't the right answer because there's not one person in America that doesn't think they're the next Red Smith or Mike Royko or Ralph Wiley or Mike Wilbon. And 
they want to be told and led on. You're ne- boy, I, boy. If things fall right, I think you're going to get this job. And and so just imagine being given uh, a high profile job, and you're being told you're going to get to hire ten people, and thousands of people want that ten want those ten jobs. So how many people you got to tell no to? And and you tell no to instead of leading them on, that's going to create a lot of hostility, and particularly it's going to create a lot of hostility if, and I'm just talking hypothetically, if uh, all the other management people and everybody else they've ever dealt with has told them they're great, and you're the one person saying, "Nah, that ain't the case." <laughs> <laughs> you come off like a real asshole, and people and, and people uh, just go ballistic. And so I'm gonna move it away from ESPN because again, this has always been me. I have seen when I was a Kansas City Star, I have seen completely incompetent people hired and carried for two or three years by editors rewriting their work and all that other stuff because they hired them. And I'm just not that type of person. Oh, oh, you can't cut it? We got You got to go. I mean, that is my mentality. And, again, it's not the right one for this American environment, where we're at and where we are with corporations and people, willingness to sue and things like that. And so I'm the wrong guy. Because I'm going to keep it 100 all the time. You're going to know exactly. Now, again, it's very healthy. It's not me being a dick. Because, again, when people are presented with the truth and then they're willing to uh, take the necessary steps to improve. Because, again, we didn't hire every, uh, you know, the, the handful of people we hired. They weren't all the next or they weren't all at Ralph Wiley status or uh, Wright Thompson level or whatever. But what we did, I felt like what I did try to hire are people like uh, open to the journey of learning. And you needed to bring that mindset in order to work with me. I'm open to the journey. I'm not a finished product. Because, again, Jason Whitley, I don't view myself as a finished product. I held myself to the same standards. I try to improve every day. Uh, and so, anyway, I can't remember what your original question was, but I'm just telling you, my level of – and, again, this isn't me bragging like I'm better than everybody else. This was poor management on my part, the level of transparency that I gave people, ineffective and poor management, some stupidity and naivety. But, again, I believe in athletic culture. I look around at the inefficiencies in other endeavors and wonder, you know, nothing operates. These athletic teams deal with diversity and efficient work much better than we do in corporate America. And so I I tried to apply the things I learned in athletics um, to the workforce. It was stupid because, uh, you know, America is way too politically correct and most people don't have the thickness of skin or the confidence of athletes to handle that. 
I, I, I was a football player at Ball State, and when I camped there as a freshman and sophomore, I was lazy as shit and just brought the wrong – lazy is too strong of a word. But I was lazy and I brought the wrong mindset because I was the first person in my family to go off to college, and I literally thought, oh, I got this football scholarship, but I'm going to go do Animal House. I'm going to go kick it in college. And, and I was an idiot, and my coaches were brutal to me, brutal, because I was one of their top recruits, and I was an idiot. And eventually over time, they were proven right, and I bent – to their will and things improve for me. And I certainly carry a lot of those life lessons with me. I'm glad those coaches were brutal with me and kept it 100% honest with me. It's helped me in the rest of my life when I finally did mature. Those lessons have stuck with me. Um, so, again, I think I'm rambling, but that's my answer. You answered. You, you got around <laughs> to it. Uh, one of the biggest issues or one of the takeaways that your critics have taken – from the Deadspin leaks and the Deadspin, art, Deadspin articles is that two of the biggest problems and ultimately probably the biggest problem of consequence that you had were with women on your staff. Is this something that's a blind spot for you? Is it something that you would say is a problem or is it just being totally mischaracterized? Uh, I, I think that it's being 100% mischaracterized. And, you know, I had Sean King <laughs> in an interview I had with him tried tried to play this card with me. Oh, no woman wrote for you and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was like, no, we, we hired two female editors and they were my first two hires. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, when you only are getting allowed to hire 10 people total, uh <laughs> You know, we hired two female editors and a secretary. Uh, but no, man, it, it's it's again. I've already spoken earlier about uh, I think the fallacy of of suggesting that something uh, <laughs> the story about me and the secretary is is, is not accurate and garbage. Uh, so no, I, I look, man. The game that's being played in the American media today is if you don't toe the company line, if a black person doesn't speak directly to the liberal dogma that uh, that people want you to talk about. Because, again, I, I'm not a Republican. <laughs> I'm not even political. But I'm just someone that has a, that's a black dude that's an independent thinker, uh, has given some thought to what being black is. And it's not liberal. Black people, for the most part, we're conservative. We vote, we vote Democratic, but we're conservative. But I just won't speak the liberal dogma, uh, Marxist shit that's very popular right now. And so the way you combat those people, if they're a white person uh, that's, that speaks about conservative values, you call them racist. A black man that litters his conversation with some conservative values, you call him sexist. And, uh, you know, it's just a ploy. Now, having said that, I don't think most men and many women have a problem with sexism. Most, all human beings have a problem with bias. And so I'm a real person. And I've, I I keep it a hundred all. Do I go to strip clubs? Yes, run from that. 
Do I have sexist thoughts? Absolutely. In a work environment, do I treat everybody the absolute same and with the utmost respect? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, I have bent over backwards throughout my – bent over backwards is the wrong word. I have been in support of diversity of all kinds throughout my entire career. And when it came to constructing uh, the undefeated team, diversity was at the – was one of my foremost thoughts and making sure I was fair to women, black people, white people, gay people, whatever. I tried to live that a hundred percent. And, you know, a lot of times there's a saying about no good deed goes unpunished. And <laughs> to some degree, that's how I felt, but you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm no victim here, but I, I'm certainly not, uh, someone that's remotely a problem for women in the workplace and in in my view other people may have a different view and Deadspin certainly tried to make something of that and so have others but you know good luck from reading your writing and and I've seen some feedback and some blowback towards you on Twitter reading your writing since you left ESPN I felt like you've been angrier and it was more like a revenge movie and revenge movies are somewhat satisfying but they don't have the same kind of depth as something like, I don't know, something that would be nominated for an Oscar, and that you had not made it your mission, but that you were angry and you were taking it out on the people or the kind of people, liberals in general, that had taken their taken their stake and dug it into your heart. Do you think your writing has changed since you left ESPN and went back to Fox? Yeah, I think it's gotten better. Uh, <laughs> and I think that I don't think I don't think what you're reading is anger. I think you're reading disappointment. Uh I do think there is a focus uh at the moment or for a time on how uh hyper liberalism is damaging black people. And uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. It is what what if I were if I were sitting out attacking conservative issues and how they're damaging black people, you wouldn't be asking me the question. You are uh, why is he angry at conservatives? No, no one would ask that question. But there's like this myth in America that liberal means good for black people, and that's a joke. Uh, and <laughs> because again. If black people would pump the brakes and really study who we are and what our history is and who created the freedoms that we have here in America, it's conservative black people. Malcolm X was conservative. Martin Luther King, conservative. Religious people. And so, you know, I talk with my mother about this all the time because my mother goes still belongs to the church that we grew up in and the church that I still support and I keep trying to and my mother's like a hardcore democrat and you know is a former union worker and again not that I've ever really participated in the political process but I would say up and up until the last year or two I'd consider myself a democrat 
but what I'm trying to explain to my mother is if we as black people don't wake up and realize we would be better served teaming up with the people holding the Bible rather than the people talking about I'm a liberal. Because the Bible and religion is at the heart of all of our freedom. Absolutely every bit. Where I would push back with you would be, I I feel like you're reading your writings. I know I've read your writings for like about 15 years. I feel like you've always called it both ways. Like you're an independent thinker. And you've always hit both ways. But the same guy that Bill O'Reilly called out and you said, I don't want to go. I'm not being called up to master's house. And I'm not saying that you don't. I'm just saying that's a difference that myself and others have noticed that has you, Bill O'Reilly you, called me, sir? You hold the whistle a little bit. Like, you, you swallow your whistles a little bit on conservatives lately. Where and when? Again, whoever. Well, hold, 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 hold on, Riley. Hold on for one second. One second, Riley. One second. If you really understand my perspective and my career, whoever's in power is who I go against. That's what journalism is supposed to be about. Whoever's in power, you need to be on their ass because power corrupts. And power corrupts liberals as quickly as it does conservatives. And so for right – and again, I'm someone who likes Barack Obama. But the Democrats uh, have the presidency, and their philosophy seems to be most pervasive in this country. And I understand – that the Republicans have a House and the Senate right now. But if you just follow my career, whoever's in power is who I tend to be, like, very skeptical of and kind of go after whatever their prevailing sentiment is. And for right now, in this moment where we're at in America, and this will sound crazy when you hear it because – the media has done such a good job of brainwashing black people. But liberals are doing us more damage than conservatives right now at this time. When Why you do go you look that? at because <laughs> I look at Black Lives Matters and the number one issue for black America right now and has been for the past ten, fifteen years is mass incarceration. And it was we were headed the direction where conservatives and liberals were talking about we got to address mass incarceration. And here come the Marxist Black Lives Matter movement to throw this hysteria about police brutality and take the whole mass incarceration issue and put it on the back burner. And all, ain't nobody even really talking about it during this political season. And they've made... And even if they were talking about it, because of Black Lives Matter and because the the illogic that they have expressed around police brutality, and, that, and again, just keep in mind, I lost a cousin that I helped raise that I love. His picture sitting right here on my coffee stand right now to police brutality. So I'm not saying this from afar. I'm saying this as someone who understands the pain of police brutality. But that's not our issue. Mass incarceration is. And this group of idiots has taken it off the table and undermined it that there's no public support at this time to even address mass incarceration. And so the prison industrial complex that keeps making money will continue to make money. And all this 
all these people running around quoting Ta-Nehisi Coates about state-sanctioned violence. That's all bullshit. The state doesn't sanction that kind of violence because it costs too damn much money. It's not a money maker. That's some stuff that you write in a book that feels good, that means nothing. My body under attack and blah, blah, blah. All that hot garbage sold for emotion, feeding people emotion rather than logic. The state does, the state sanctions incarceration. And so this reshaping, this Marxist reshaping of young black people and them not understanding Marx, it's anti-religious and religion has been our tool to freedom and we're walking young people away from religion and God. And, you know, I hate to sound like some preacher or whatever, but it's just facts if you understand our history. What has set us free? If you looked at the African-American journey, regardless of the fact of who gave us Christianity or who gave us the Bible and what their intention was for it, Regardless of that, because I'm not saying it was given to us for the right reason, but it has been our weapon to produce freedom for us in this country. And so I'm just afraid we're going to look up 300 years from now and there'll be a new version of the Bible. And they're going to tell a story about African-Americans walking away from religion and God and and walking right into extinction here in America. And so it's just, look, man, it's time for African-Americans to look at liberals and say, does this really make sense, what you're teaching us, (laughs) what you're suggesting is a solution for us? And so, because again, I think we're being led to our own destruction. And and that's not me saying, hey, go out and vote Democratic, I mean Republican. Republican. That's not me saying that, but you need to start questioning liberalism. And that's not a personal thing all because of what happened to me. That's just a factual examination of the record. And if you go look at the record, when Bill Clinton wanted to get in the White House, what did he do? Um, mandatory minimums and all that other are, are uh, doubling down on that and the dr- doubling down on the drug war and locking more black people up. But, but oh, he's the first black president and we love him and he's the greatest. Uh, man, that's some hot garbage. And th- this lane that liberals have us in where you can only say certain things, that's not freedom. That's not freedom of thought. It, it, it's so... You know, we're playing a game of calling people names and not letting people be who they really are. And and just as long as you say the right words and avoid saying these few words and pretend like you're for this, you're a good guy. Given your passion for mass incarceration and, and just in general for the just the black community in general, that's something that you're passionate about and you write about race. Do you think that your approach is the right one, the way you do it? I mean, when you get really fired up, like you really go after people, and I've seen on Twitter some people have said something about your approach, and you say, well, you know, I need to work on that because sometimes I can be condescending. Is that something that you explore or consider changing at all? Or Yeah. No, I, I'm 
I'm trying to come off less condescending because that's not one, easy. they're very illogical. I will agree with you there. there. There's not a lot of logic, and that can be very irritating to a logical person. Yes, and so, but and I know that my outlook has been so framed as, oh, well, that's not the way black people think. And so I know it's hard for black people to hear me say, no, 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 this is how we think, and this is how we should think. And if you go study our leaders that help uh, really produce our freedom, this is how they think. And if you go study these Northeast liberals that uh, think they have the solution to everything, if you just applied logic to take W.E.B. Du Bois and his talented 10th deal, 10% of Negroes are talented enough to carry the other 90% or whatever. We should worry about, concentrate on these talented 10%. Just imagine Donald Trump saying that. You know what? <laughs> One in 10 black people, that's who we should worry about. The other 90%, <laughs> that's some crazy, elitist, Marxist shit. And we've just accepted it as some kind of Enlightening truth, and it's elite, think and if you really understand Marxism, self-esteem thing. But do you think of a time when he said that and wrote that is more of a self-esteem? Hell thing? no. Hell, <laughs> that was handed to him by some Marxist elitists. If you understand Marxism, Karl Marx. That's the kind of stuff he believes in. There's this elite class of people that uh, should control everything. And the rest of you all should just fill in these little slots and be happy with yourselves. And I'm just sorry, as a black person and as someone that went to Ball State and graduated with a 2.3, whose daddy didn't graduate high school, whose mama was a factory worker, whose family has done some time, I'm not part of that talented 10%. And so them 10% Negroes can kiss my ass. You really had a 2.3. Hell yes. <laughs> uh, change the subject just a little bit. What are, you, what are you trying to accomplish with J School? Just trying to open up young journalists' mind and hopefully some journalism professors' mind. <laughs> just for my... Hey, man, this is what journalism really is. Or here's some standards that used to apply to journalism that still should apply because it's like we've run away from journalism, and I'm just trying to raise my hand in the air and say, no, man, this journalism stuff still works. The truth, and particularly for black people, the truth is on our side, and that's what journalism is supposed to be about. And if you... uh, this advocacy journalism that we've fallen into isn't the journalism that helped create the freedom that we enjoy. Our objectivity and fact-finding and the presentation of the truth without an agenda is what helped set us free in the 60s and 70s. This whole advocacy thing, and everybody choose a side. We don't win that way. 
I'm just telling. And so I just look at young people that have bought all in this. Hey, I'm going to be an advocate, and I'm just going to do a liberal style of journalism, and someone else can do a right-wing conservative style of journalism, and we'll let the facts fall or the truth fall where it may. That doesn't work for us as black people. We will lose, and we are losing. Do you think, and a lot of your notions about journalism, while true and are classic, do you think that you ever think you're fighting a losing battle? Sometimes when you talk about journalism, it reminds me of the cowboy <laughs> movies. And the cowboys are always kind of like, this is the way we want to do it, but always the backdrop is the railroad is coming. And the Internet, in this case, would be the railroad. And there's so much money on just getting clicks and so much money in advocacy journalism. Is it, is it just, is the thing, are the things that you're talking about, are they just kind of like, Gonna go the way of the dinosaur, basically, except a small pocket. Hey, yes. And if we as African Americans sit by comfortably and allow it, we're gonna go the way of the dinosaur as well. Because again, it's like, do we have an understanding of world history and what human beings are capable of? Because whatever they were capable of doing in 1920 or 1820 or 1755, they're capable of doing today. We got this false notion. Oh, the past is the past. And it, well, the past is prologue. It's a prediction of what's going to happen in the future. And so it, it's, we got to wake up, man. As I love these kids, man, stay woke. <laughs> I just I think of them saying that while they're in a coma. <laughs> Screaming out Stay woke over Twitter And they're in a coma uh, Let's move to a little lighter fame. Even though you might get deep on this particular issue Because you care so much about the show The Wire is your favorite show You quote it endlessly on Twitter And in your, column, in your columns What's so great about The Wire For those who have never seen it uh, For me It explains Everything about America and uh, I mean that, that, that's what's so comical about me being labeled some kind of raging right winger, and you know uh, David Simon and Michelle Alexander Rothwhite, but just particularly David Simon, the creator of the Wire, is one of my biggest journalistic heroes, and one of my biggest heroes, just period. And he he the wire is an exposing of the truth, and the beauty of the wire is, and I tried to explain this to people uh, about uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson, and uh, and I try to say, look, if you watch the wire, let's pretend Bodie Broadus is uh, Michael Brown. And let's pretend Pres Belusky, the bumbling white cop, is Darren Wilson. Because that is the reality. That though Darren Wilson is probably more like Pres Belusky and Michael Brown is probably more like Bodie Broadus. And Bodie Broadus murdered Wallace at the end of season one. And did otherly dastardly deeds, but you still liked, respected, and when the guy got killed at the end of the show, 
you were sad as shit. And Prez Belusky, uh I killed, accidentally killed a black cop, another cop. He put out the eye of some black kid. But you still liked and respected him. You saw his humanity. And so, <laughs> again, so if you think of Michael Brown as Bodie, not the greatest kid, but you understood his narrative, and so you liked him, and you respected him, and you cared about him. Prez Belusky, not a good cop, but you liked and respected him, knew he had some good qualities to him. If we looked at Darren Wilson and Michael Brown that way, there would there buildings wouldn't have burned in Ferguson. And we would start working towards real solutions rather than just demonizing white people or demonizing black people. That's what I loved about The Wire, man. If you watch The Wire, it's it's an explanation, a realistic explanation of who we are and why we should care about each other and how we should really see each other rather than seeing each other as evil. So in your mind, just we live in a TV renaissance. I'm moving off the wire a little bit. We live in a TV renaissance right now, probably since The Sopranos came on. What What are your top tier shows of all time? Well, I mean, you got The Wire, you got Game of Thrones. Love Game of Thrones because, to me, it's the explanation of what people will do to get power and maintain power. You know, I'm not the type of person that likes. Uh, what I don't know, Dungeons and Dragons? Is that what this would be kind of like, or whatever? But, <laughs> yeah, you could. Fantasy uh, would be a good, uh, yeah. yeah fantasy, fantasy would be a good genre to call it. But it's a mix yeah. of everything, like you're saying. Yeah, I don't like that. But man, I love this show. I mean, I put to me, it's right there with The Wire, for different wow. reasons. High praise. Uh, it, does, it does talk a lot about just the human reaction to power, like you're saying. Yeah, and relationships the whole night. And you know, I like Mad Men. Uh, crap! I, I love the I'm shield. Let's pretend like you're not gonna say Sex in the City because I've seen that in your list before. So we, we can skip uh, that. <laughs> look, man, look, man. I enjoyed Sex in the City. I was dating a girl that loved the show, and she used to make me watch it every Sunday, and I enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> apologize for that, but I'm not gonna put it all up there with these other shows I'm talking about. What what? What am I? I like the first couple of seasons of House of Cards, then it fell off a cliff to me. Or uh, uh, I seem like I'm, I like Mad Men. Uh, the clearly, the I like Wire. The Sopranos. The she, yeah. So this show all them, I know. I know it was an accident that you didn't you didn't list Breaking Bad, and I know there has to be a sin of omission there, not commission, right? <laughs> Look, Breaking Bad was good for two or three seasons. Oh my god! And then it beca- it became MacGyver ass. Look, it's not held to these showrunners, man. Get in bed with the media, and the next thing you know, the media refuses to criticize certain shows. And it, 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 it's it's almost like Breaking Bad is like Kobe Bryant because oh the media god. brought into the narrative. Because the media brought into the look, Kobe Bryant's a great player, but he's overrated. But it's like they they bought into the narrative early on. Oh my God, Breaking Bad! After two or three, it's going to challenge the wire. And it's you like were we bought into that. Until that happened. You were on board until Colson wrote that no, article. No, no, you no, were no. On board until <laughs> Colson wrote that article, and you turned on the show. 
that listen, if someone wrote that right now about Game of Thrones, I wouldn't trip. I really wouldn't. <laughs> because it deserves that level of praise. Breaking Bad, no. It's like we bought into a narrative after a couple of seasons and then no one wanted to change from that narrative because just like the sports media, we've now bought into this deal where everything has to be the greatest thing ever or has to be a, you know, it's Tiger Woods got to be chasing Jack Nicklaus. Kobe's got to be chasing Michael Jordan. LeBron's got to be chasing, and we don't want to let that narrative go. And so they just kept writing about Breaking Bad, even though it did incredibly illogical, unexplainable. Just he didn't have to. The storylines didn't have to make sense. All he needed to do was have Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston act well, and all the critics would go, "Oh, it was great." And even though the Man, plot didn't you, have to make you a look. You started sense. holding that show to. They're always plot holes. You started holding that show to an impossible standard. I remember when you were you were on Twitter. You started holding. Listen, that show if you don't consider standard. yourself the greatest, it needs to be <laughs> held to a high standard. <laughs> No, no. Breaking, Breaking Bad, extremely overrated. That the the last episode is, and again, it's just like Kobe Bryant. I'm glad I just thought of that. You know, I may write I'm a not. column about this. How Breaking Bad is oh, just like no, Kobe Bryant. Please don't. Please but don't. The last <laughs> episode of Breaking Bad explains everything that was wrong with the show. They got away with so. so much. Look, the fans of the show started writing blogs that the last episode must have been a dream sequence. That was the only way they could explain all the different <laughs> things Walter White did. It had to be a dream. I mean, they wrote about I, I this. I will say the last and then episode, the sh- they did make some things. They did, they did move a lot of chess pieces to make some things work. <laughs> a lot of chess pieces. A man dying of cancer walked four miles downhill in the snow to a bar then drove across, before driving across country, stopped in some city and picked up two idiots that held guns from across the street with red dots on someone as he ripped them off. Then he drove to New Mexico and walked around. The most wanted man in America walked around anywhere he wanted to look at his son at one last time, to look at his wife. It was crazy, man. (laughs) <laughs> you're never going to agree And you hurt my feelings Let's move on um, Let's get back to some of your recent columns The latest comment you wrote was about Greg Hardy What is the public missing In its reaction to Greg Hardy Well I think I I hope I spelled it out That uh, uh, That Outrage And this kind of over the top Full outrage is dangerous. That as much as we think we know happened with Greg Hardy, we don't. There are paid professionals that have a lot of expertise at this, that aren't sports writers, that aren't television broadcasters. A judge who is very a female judge, Harvard graduate, who is very passionate about domestic violence issues, presided over the case, gave the guy a 60-day suspended sentence and a year's probation. She did that because she has so much experience 
with domestic violence cases that she knows this one's so murky. If you just read the police reports and what was actually said, it's so murky that I'm not dropping the hammer on anybody here. I'm going to give this guy a strong warning. When they convicted him in a bench trial, she gave him 60 days and a year's probation. I'm going to give this dude a strong warning. I'm going to keep it moving because we can't really figure out what's going on here. And again, those aren't her words, but that's what her actions clearly state. Prosecutor involved, female prosecutor involved. They all agree. And then the guy got it overturned or or dismissed or whatever because well, look, man, he cut the check. He look, he he cut the check. <clears throat> but we still don't know. And if you go look, I, I don't want to get all into examine the case, but again, if someone is drunk and high on cocaine, they're not a reliable witness. And those are facts entered into evidence in police reports out of her own mouth. Uh, and again, this isn't me defending Greg Hardy. This is me saying, you know what, I'm going to defer to the experts that deal with this every day. I'm, as a sports writer sitting in Los Angeles or a television personality sitting in Los Angeles, it's so outrageous and irresponsible to act like we know more than a judge in North Carolina. And so we're going to be I will say and this I kind of strong. Out, go, ahead. go ahead. This kind of outrage is dangerous. This kind of outrage is what led to the strengthening of drug laws that produced all this mass incarceration because this kind of our Lynn bias overdoses on cocaine. And the next thing you know, let's pass some laws, lock them up forever, blah, blah, blah. And now as more and more facts come out about drugs and cocaine, <laughs> they're not nearly as dangerous as all the outrage that we were uh, protesting about in the eighties. And I thought that was there's a better strongest, solution. That's your strongest point in the column. I did think that was your strongest point in the column. You also, in the column, you mentioned that trying to silence Greg Hardy and blaming ESPN for even giving him the platform was also dangerous. You mentioned that. It was not only dangerous, illogical and stupid and preposterous. You know, James Earl Ray, that allegedly or did kill Martin Luther King, he did a television interview. Timothy McVeigh blew up Oklahoma City. He did a television. Charles Manson's done countless television inter- interviews. It, it's and Greg Hardy. Oh my God, let's don't interview him. I, this is full outrage. Ill again, and people think, oh, I'm a victim, so therefore I get to throw logic out the window, and I just get to be emotional. Well, me and my family were the victim of police brutality. When I go on anywhere to talk about it. I don't throw logic out the window. Just I'm just going to be emotional because of what happened to me. That that's not what a journalist, it's not what a responsible broadcaster does. And you know, is there an appropriate reaction? In. Is there an appropriate reaction to uh, these men who have domestic violence uh, problems or incidents, and then not only bringing them back into society, but bringing them back into sports? Is there is there an avenue, or is there something you envision that would be an appropriate response to them? The Mayweather, uh, right? Look, I don't personally like Floyd Mayweather, and so you don't see me writing a lot about. You don't see me writing a lot about Floyd Mayweather. You've never, if you go through my entire history, I've I've always been a pretty harsh 
critic of Mayweather's stupidity. You know, I didn't I didn't catch religion on Ray Rice when domestic violence became the issue in the sports media to express outrage about. Uh, and so, I, I what's appropriate is just to to continue to push for more education and understanding and um, uh, you know treatment for these people that have these issues uh, because, you know, again, outrage and punishment, you know, we've tried that with the drug war and I don't think it works. And I think if we really take a big picture nuanced look at domestic violence and how if we had a war on domestic violence, where that war would take place and who would be impacted, it ain't going to be millionaire athletes on the front lines. And so we need to be very careful about who we're really sicking the police on. And, uh, again, that, that's why I keep saying all these people that love, I'm woke, I'm woke. Are you really? Do you really know who you're sicking the police on? And, and, you know, I say that as a member of the 1%. But, you know, I got some family that's not. And... <laughs> Uh, again, I've tried to explain that people start their journey at America's bottom. If you put a microscope on their rise to middle class or wherever their journey, regard, it's going to be uglier than the people that grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth. <laughs> and And a lot of the people sitting on TV and writing in newspapers are from privilege and their perspective is from privilege. That This is what's driving me crazy about Twitter and all these Twitter superstars. Their perspective is so privileged. They've experienced virtually nothing real. And they're out here posturing on Twitter like they've experienced something real. I saw <laughs> I saw <clears throat> in an article on the Big League Bomani talking about Twitter's the real world. <laughs> I just laughed out loud and I just was like, Where are you from, man? Where you been? <laughs> you know, and I know I know your parents are college professors and all that. He blocks everybody that disagrees with him on Twitter. So I <laughs> wish the real world was like that. I've been blocked by him on three accounts. <laughs> but dude, I don't even want to – I'm just saying, man, look, I'm again, my father didn't graduate high school. My mother was a factory worker. I got some family that's, you know, and it just – so, and I know where I'm at now, and I've been in a pretty soft place for a while. but. I, I've never left where I was from, and uh, the people that I grew up with and love. And it's just, I listen to some of these people, and they think, they think Twitter's the real world? Holy cow. I need to take them someplace or get them off Twitter so they can experience the real world. I always thought that, rewinding a little bit to an article that you wrote a few months back when the Peyton Manning controversy was going, 
I always thought the crux of the controversy really was, from a black perspective, was that they wanted Peyton to be held accountable the same way Cam and his indiscretions of college were accountable. And I know it was before the Internet, really, when Peyton did this. But I, I know that that was not a nationally run story way back when, when Peyton did it. And I felt like Pete... Whoa, 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 it wasn't a national story, what Peyton did or didn't do, his indiscretions at Tennessee. How, why do you – let's go back. 1996, how old were you? I was 16. I was very – I was just as plugged in. I was very aware of the sports community. In oh, fact, see, I didn't hear – Yeah, you I were because, because why? Because why, why were you so plugged in? Because I love sports. Because you had America Online or what? I mean, how – how, how do you know what was being done? That, that wasn't the, the internet. It hadn't blown up yet. So, exactly. So I'm just saying, how were you so – were you taking newspapers from all over the country? What, you were reading the New York Times? I read. I looked at ESPN 24-7, USA Today, Washington Post. I live in Virginia. So anything I could get my hands on. And, and I think – I don't think saying regional papers illustrates the argument. I mean, basically back then, if ESPN didn't run it, it wasn't – it wasn't national. So it, basically, you're saying because it wasn't a big deal on ESPN, Peyton Manning got away with something. I mean, I think that's well, basically I, the gist of your argument, huh? You're simplifying it. In general, I don't. It, I did not know about it in 1997, and I was you were 16 years old, and you, you're 16 years old. And you said because I didn't know, therefore it wasn't a big deal. Peyton but also Manning public consciousness. It wasn't in the public. I mean, people around me didn't talk about it. A lot of things weren't in the public consciousness. A lot of things weren't in the public consciousness that are are now. You know why? Because we carry a phone around that everything the public conscious thinks is right here in our phone. And so so that technology wasn't available. That's why people wanted it. I'm saying that's why people wanted to see a white So let's go redo everything. Let's go redo everything in American history and say, well, shit, it wasn't in the public consciousness. Let's put it there now. Let's redo everything in American history so that it's all in the public consciousness. Anybody that had any indiscretion back in the day, we need to redo it because it wasn't in the public consciousness. That's a ridiculous standard and highly unfair to Peyton Manning. And because Peyton Manning said at the time, and he still stands on it today, and it was probably true. Charles Woodson won the Heisman Trophy because of that story. And so to sit here and pretend like it had no impact on Peyton Manning's life is a joke. And I don't know if you've ever been 21 or 22 years old and been an athlete and felt like you were denied the Heisman Trophy because of a story that you believe, whether right or wrong, was bogus. But that'll leave a mark. Oh, I got some friends that played in ball. Florida. That's easy for Peyton to say. He couldn't beat Florida, and Charles Woodson had a highly televised game. I mean, that's a tradi- I don't think that that's necessarily valid. That's just Peyton. Man, you were 16 years Florida. old, and we beat talking Florida. about a- Beat Florida. I've always, ho, 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 I've always been very into sports. Ronnie, but I'm Ronnie, 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 Ronnie. Peyton Manning in 1996 or whatever year this was, was a white quarterback. They don't lose Heisman trophies very often, and they sure as hell don't lose them to defensive players. 
How many, so, like, I mean, how many quarterbacks that choked the big game still win the Heisman? He couldn't beat Florida. I mean, that's 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 generally how it goes. You get on TV and you don't win the biggest game of the year, you don't win the award. That that happens a lot. Now, granted, it was a defensive player that was odd. <laughs> Look, I don't have all the Heisman Trophy winners in front of me, but I guarantee you, there's some one loss quarterbacks in that in there. All right. Uh, let's let's, so, let's move I, on. I, I, <laughs> let me make my final point, though, in terms of what leaves a mark with athletes. Again, I I got some friends that played with me at Ball State, and they're 48, 49 years old and still mad they didn't make all Mac and felt like they got cheated out of it by the coaches or whatever. And this, <laughs> So I could imagine. Maybe it's delusion in his head, but he believes that story cost him the Heisman Trophy. That leaves a mark. And and to sit here for people to say, I was 16 years old and it wasn't in the public consciousness, and therefore it wasn't blah, 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 blah. Man, that's some bull. You're standing on weak ground there, very weak ground. But go ahead. <laughs> What's the state of black America today? What's the state of black America today? Uh, vulnerable, highly, highly vulnerable, far more vulnerable than we realize. Uh, uh, vulnerable and in need, I would think, of Obama, I think, will be most important to black America after his presidency than during it, and hopefully he's willing to step up and play that role uh, because we need some credible, level-headed, authentic leadership. Uh, And so, you know, I I just think we're vulnerable. I, I think that uh, we're locked out of the job market for a multitude of reasons. Mass incarceration being at the top of it. Uh, family uh, destroyed, in my opinion, mostly because of the drug war and mass incarceration. Uh, you know, you, you throw in... Uh, some of the uh, do-good policies, well-intentioned policies that uh, you couple those with mass incarceration, the black man is locked out of his family, which just makes us very vulnerable. Uh, and, and you know, our leadership and the actions we're taking right now are very immature. They're not it's like we're playing checkers and everybody else is playing chess. And so I'm hoping that Obama, uh, after his presidency, will come in and start teaching chess and strategic moves that are not emotional but are intended to produce long-term, long-term results. I'm going to give you some names, and you just give me your off-the-top-of-the-head reaction to them. Stephen A. Smith. Uh, talented, uh, talented, hard worker, uh, a little bombastic, but you know, uh, 
I think he's less bombastic than he was early earlier in his celebrity career. Uh, most days I tend to like Stephen A. Smith. Skip Bayless. Very hardworking. Uh, most days I tend to like Skip Bayless. Because, uh, one, I think he's evolved. I don't think he gets credit for his evolvement or evolution. But mostly I think he's evolved. I think that, you know, he went from a guy that spent too much time baiting LeBron and going too hard with the Tebow thing. So now, you know, a lot of times I find Skip well-prepared to argue his points and, you know, somewhat amusing. Uh, You know, he can be sticky, and, you know, some days I may not like him, but most days I like him. Bill Simmons. Uh, man, that's a good one. Uh, he, you know, because I'm not a gigantic podcast listener, I'm I'm not much of a. I like to read and watch TV more than I listen to podcasts. I'm not up to date on what he's been doing. Uh, and so. It's it's hard for me, I, you know. I love the guy. I've always been very very honest and trying. You know, the guy was my favorite columnist for a long time. Hilarious, informed, irreverent uh, as a columnist, but he's quit writing columns for now. So it's it, it's hard for me to comment. Um, you know, I think he's really talented. Clearly. Uh, particularly as a writer and a podcaster. It'll be interesting what he does on TV at HBO because I don't think that's ever been his strength, television. But, you know, he's a talented guy. That uh, The only thing I'm aware of is when he picks fights with ESPN. And, you know, I, I, I think he, he could do more. He's so talented. He's, he should just kill ESPN with his content. More than picking at him. Bomani Jones. Uh, I think he's a talented radio broadcaster. Uh, I think that he uh, has fallen. I think he's fallen far too in love with himself and all these his liberal groupies that love to champion Bomani as their, as their favorite black friend or favorite black media personality to, so that says all the right things about them. Uh, again, talented radio broadcasts are a little sticky uh, for me. What about the writer? Far more life experience to back up all the high praise that he gets about how intelligent he is. Uh, I just think if it, it, an adult examining his perspective just thinks it's it's devoid of real life experience, and you know, too caught up in that Ta-Nehisi Coates Marxist 
garbage. <laughs> Bottom line. Your buddy, Sean King. Dude, that, that just someone with a major identity crisis who may not have an identity crisis at all. I mean, he just may be a white dude pretending to be black to create negative backlash towards black people. He he may know exactly what he's doing. <laughs> he just called uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, from the if you take him at his word, he's just a confused person that uh, hates himself and expresses that hate with hatred of white people. I mean, if I, I couldn't imagine starting a Twitter feed that's just uh, primarily filled with, here's what white people did wrong today. Because if a white person started a Twitter feed, it was just, here's what black people did wrong today, we call that person racist and dangerous and filled with hate. And uh, so that's just, that's a lost soul that we need to pray for. John Skipper. Great guy, uh, very well-intentioned, very smart, uh, a visionary. Robert Littell of Black Sports Online. I I, I respect Rob's hustle. Uh, I I don't respect his grammar, (laughs) 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 but... (laughs) <laughs> I, I respect his hustle. I, I he works hard, you know, building his brand. Uh, you know, could benefit from, you know, a night school English class or writing class. Uh, but I can't anybody that works hard and tries to build something on their own, I, I can't do nothing but, you know, tip my hat to them. Jason McIntyre's big lead. Uh, he's, you know, another, he built his own thing. I got big respect for that. He's developed uh, some writers like Ty Duffy and Jason List, who I really respect. Uh, I got nothing but good things to say about Jason McIntyre. We go way back. I think he's smart. I think his he's his sight and he's fun. I think he's fair. Uh, you know, I got nothing but good things to say about McIntyre. Greg Howard. <clears throat> uh, a lost soul that. Uh, you know, represents, I think, a lot of African-American kids of his generation that grew up detached from the black community uh, and is now trying to use social media, media to figure out their racial identity and to promote what they perceive as black. Um, but, you know, mostly he's just a, a puppet and a tool for his white handlers. Richard Deitch. 
block you on Twitter? Did I read that right? Yeah, I blocked him at one point too. I blocked okay. him, but uh, I think Richard Dice is a frustrated media personality who couldn't make it in this business in a real way and fell into being a media critic and now works out his personal issues via his media column. Uh, Mostly well-intentioned. Some things of his, a few I agree with. I reached out to the guy probably a month or so ago uh, saying, you know, we should end the feud and uh he didn't respond uh he he's he's the leader of the good old boys network pretending like he's the leader of something real and uh important but he he's just the president of establishment sports writing journalism and he's there to promote the establishment and be a mouthpiece for everybody that's in the club and to uh, criticize or demonize anybody that's not part of the club. Last name, Dan Lebetard. One of the most talented sports writers of my generation, if not the most talented, uh, who, you know, uh, speak, you know, it's like I'm imitating uh, Mike Royko. He's imitating Tony Kornheiser. And, you know, he's trying to uh, have a, the you know, he put a lot of work into the first 20 years of his career, and he's trying to have as much fun the last 20 years of his career as he can while making good money and enjoying himself. Uh but an extremely talented journalist and uh, someone that, you know, over the years I leaned on for a lot of advice. What's it say about America that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are doing so well in this election? That America is very frustrated with the status quo, and they want to be talked to in a real and authentic way. They don't want to... Uh, be lied to and told that all the system's fine and it's fair and, you know, it's not, (laughs) there's been too many, it's not just poor black people that are hurting in America. People are hurting in America. And a lot of people have had to completely restructure their dreams and lives uh, because of the economic downturn in America and the income inequality in America. I just look at the industry I'm most passionate about, the newspaper industry and journalism industry, and I don't even think people understand the upheaval, that when I got into the business in 1990 or 91, 90, uh, the thought was, you make it to a decent-sized newspaper, and you avoid getting arrested for any serious crime, and you can have that job for the rest of your life, pay off your house, help your kids through college, 
and retire at 62 or 65, and that would be that. And halfway through my career, that became like, holy cow, that's not the case anymore. And they're laying people off, and now you move to the Internet, and they give you a contract for two or three years, and every two or three years they can just let you go and wash their hands of you. And uh, there's just no certainty. And so I'm looking at people that – I look at a guy like Blair Kirkhoff in Kansas City, great guy, uh, great family man, had established a career in the 90s as one of the top voices on college basketball. And he just put, you know what, things don't get better, I'm going to be the college basketball writer at the Kansas City Star for the next 20 years, pay off my house, get my kids through college. He's still the Kansas City Star. But now he's doing 10 different jobs and working like he's 24 years old. And I just go, holy cow, that is, it's gut-wrenching. Because the guy's in his early 50s, and he's working like a 24-year-old. And he's going to, hopefully he'll be allowed to do that for another eight years but he may not be. He may get let go at any time as the newspaper industry can, continues to downsize. And that has gone on in so many industries around the country. People that got into careers with one set of expectations reach 45 to 50 years old and have had to totally readjust their lives. And that creates a lot of frustration. And so that's why... I sit here and think there are people like thinking they're the only ones in pain and only my group is in any pain. And I mean, there are people with far worse fates than Blair Kirkhoff. They've been laid off, let go and are bartending and doing a bunch of stuff in their forties and fifties. They never thought they're college educated and they've had to restart careers. But You've got these people sitting around going, only my group is in pain, and they don't have a broad enough vision to know, no, this pain is everywhere, and people are frustrated everywhere. And so when Obama came in, he would change we can believe in, and he was tapping into that pain. And particularly when the housing market fell and people lost their retirement and all that other stuff. He was tapping into that pain with changes and he's had eight years and he's in my view, he's done a good job as president. But the pain has intensified and spread. And so has the frustration. And that's why Bernie and Trump resonate and people are willing to listen to him because the, the again, the cancer has metastasized and gone other places, and white people uh, are in pain, and people that were living good lives before are in pain, and uh, they want to hear people that aren't the status quo and aren't saying, oh, let's stay the course or everything's fine, blah, blah, blah. They want to hear somebody bring it to them in the real. And even someone like Trump, who speaks inappropriately from time to time, speaks uh, unfairly from time to time, and speaks imprecisely from time to time, 
what people are attracted to is at least he's saying what he believes. May not be right, but at least it's real. And we're at a time in American history, people are attracted to authenticity above all else. And Bernie and Trump seem more authentic than everyone else. Hillary's got a machine, and she's she's like the Lannisters holding on to power at King's Landing. <laughs> and but we, again, some of you have read the books and know more than I do. Uh, you know, maybe the Lannisters don't survive. Uh, you're in luck because we're we're getting off. This is the season where they're totally <laughs> ahead of the books, so now you don't even have to worry about that anymore. They're they're totally oh, ahead of the books. Yeah. <laughs> They're working off his notes, but they, he, he hasn't written fast enough. So now you don't even have to worry about the book readers. Oh, okay. Uh, so, anyway, you, that's why I burn. Oh, okay. Uh, the column, is there a column or columns that you regret writing, or you just you don't have regrets about columns? Columns that I regret writing, you know, years and years ago, I wrote a very inappropriate column about Marcus Allen and the O.J. Simpson trial. It was a humor column. And Marcus Allen wanted to beat me up about it. <laughs> and I, it was just, it was wrong for me to do it. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. But I cracked a joke in church. And I cracked a joke that I shouldn't have cracked. And so I've regretted that, and I ended up having to apologize to Marcus and his wife at the time. Uh, but beyond that, no, because you, you know, I don't mind being wrong. I don't, you know, people throw up in my face. You said the Heat should break up after the first season. So, <laughs> <laughs> my opinion was wrong. So what? Uh, you know, so no, nah, there's not a lot of columns I regret. What's your advice to young journalists? <sighs> Man, uh, challenge your challenge the conventional wisdom espoused over Twitter. Challenge advocacy journalism is the thing to do, be willing to run the marathon of journalism rather than trying to run a 100-meter dash. So I got this easy for me to say given the career that I've had. But when I got into this business, it wasn't remotely about money. I got into the business I can remember my teacher at Ball State, a Dr. Tendai Kambula. I think he had worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer. He told me that his, he made $70,000 a year at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I can remember sitting there in college going, damn, if I'm age 40 and I'm making 70000 a year writing about sports, I got life licked. And because <laughs> you got to remember again. My father didn't graduate high school. My mother was a factory worker. I had small dreams, and I wanted to make $70,000 when I was 40 years old. That was my mentality as I got into the business. It wasn't about getting rich. It wasn't about sports writers weren't on TV then, really. <clears throat> and so it wasn't about any of that. And so 
you know, sports writing and journalism is supposed to be a calling. And, you know, it's supposed to be about representing people without voices, the little people, people without power. And we have turned journalism now into about the writer. The actual writer of the story is most important. And that's inappropriate. Uh, It's unhealthy. It's narcissistic. And, you know, we need to move away from that. Again, this is a calling. This isn't about... Oh, I'm going to go, this, it's not about, oh, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to be a snark person at Gawker that destroys people. and We're all going to high-five and get drunk and drop acid and do Molly after work. <laughs> and I'm not saying journalists were all straight-laced because, you know, all the journalists I know kicked it, you know, or like to drink, go to bars or whatever. But, again, now it's like this whole little group thing. Oh, I'm going to get this group. And we're all going to think the same thing, and we're all going to party and kick it and do molly and get drunk at bars, and and that's all part of the profession now. And that just seems misguided and misplaced. Uh, Look, I know I go too far with it, but I'm just telling you, journalism is critical to the existence of a democracy. And why do you think so many? Reasons, why do you think so many journalists have turned to television? It, it is a calling, and every writer that I've ever heard interviewed says it's a calling. But it seems like so many of them go to television and limit their writing eventually. Because there's no stability anymore, uh, and again, <laughs> keep in mind, no one. I stayed the Kansas City Star all the way until 2010. A lot of my friends were mocking me and laughing. What are you doing, man? Get the hell out of Kansas City. Uh, you know, you should get you a TV show. And all the all the way up to me taking the job of the undefeated, it was always about writing. And now I'll do part of the interruption in my spare time, but I want to do this website. And it wasn't until after this undefeated thing that I was like, okay, there's just, People like me, journalism, there's so much hostility towards journalism right now in America that, man, go ahead and do this broadcasting thing. You're good at it. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, to some degree, I'm giving up. But what I have told myself is to make myself feel better is like, man, you gave it 25 years. You ain't got nothing to be ashamed of. Let someone else give it twenty five years, uh, and and I and I took in my view, I took the beating for do for twenty five years of doing it the way that I believe was the right way and trying to live up to Mike Royko's legacy uh, in an era when everybody kind of laughs at people for trying to do it the right way. It's like, don't you realize the game is rigged and <laughs> that. You know, people are just making up stuff in this profession and doing whatever they can to get clicks. And, uh, you know, but I gave it the best that I had. And, you know, I still enjoy writing. I'm still going to write for my blog. But I'm I'm going to do this TV thing and this broadcasting thing at the highest level I can. And 
you know, if I get criticized for that, I, I'll sleep comfortably. I did have one listener question from our blog that I thought stood out. This is from Cameron Russell. Though I disagree with how hard you go on certain topics, I do recognize the validity of some of your points. I think you go too hard, a.k.a. being too real, and it's gotten you jammed up professionally. Have you ever considered dumbing it down in order to become more tenured somewhere before you actually begin your offensive? Your voice is a necessary one in the sports world, but abrasive to the PC world. Uh, yeah, I thought about dumbing it down, but I, I, I can't. I can't. It's not me. It, 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 it's, it's not me. And you know, look. If you see me on TV, anybody that see me on TV, no, there's a far lighter side to me uh, that I do bring to the table. Uh, what what I want to do in 2016 is get my podcast back going, get on television, get my television show going. And I think when all of me is out there in the podcast and the writing and on television, I think I'm far easier to understand. I think people get the tone of my voice and hear the, the passion I have for these issues and for black people, and it's harder to take me out of context. When I'm limited, when my platforms are limited, I think it's easier to take me out of context. So I, I think there's some truth to what he's saying. But, again, it's like I hear him say that, or that hey, take an Obama-like approach. Well, Obama's a politician. And, again, I'm anti-politics. I've, I, for as long as I've lived, you don't even vote, right? I've hated. I said you don't even no, vote. No, I don't do vote. I no. to point <laughs> I don't like politicians, and I never have. I don't. Do, one, it's a problem for me personally, because I'm not great with compromise. And so when people like promise me one thing and they say, "Well, let's compromise on that," I was like, "Oh, okay, you ain't gonna live up to what you said." And because <laughs> I'm going to, to the best of my ability, live up to everything I said. Or die trying, uh, and so it, it. I don't know if the Obama approach. I just wasn't meant for politics. I don't know if the Obama approach works for me. I just got to do me, and I think over time. It's one of the reasons I believe in the written word. The written word stands the test of time, and so I, you know, a lot of the work I'm most proud of is the stuff I wrote years ago that I go back and read and say, "Damn, that's." I went back and read the column I wrote after the OJ verdict, and damn it, everything you hear me saying today is in that column. <laughs> so, it's like, everybody acts like I done got brand new. I've never, I'm not, I'm not brand new. I've been criticizing the media for misleading the public for the entire time I've been in this career. Jason, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I felt like you set the record straight on a lot of issues, and we really dug deep on some issues, and I loved having you on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ronnie. All right. That was Jason Whitlock, folks. Again, if you enjoyed this content, go to iconoclassicallybombastic.com. Also, go to iTunes and rate the show with a five-star rating, and subscribe to the IBN Network, your support is greatly appreciated. 
Also, you can follow us on Twitter at O'Connell Bomb. Thank you, and until next time, this is RC signing off.